as a, a quantum leap from the world of, of science and technology into the kinds of things that we're <clears throat> excuse me that we're talking about today. And uh, I, you know, I guess the first time I heard the question, I was a little surprised because for me, it was less of a leap and more of a of a logical next step. It simply made sense uh, for me to to follow this path. I was born and raised in a conservative community in northern Missouri, in the, the Midwest of this big, beautiful country of ours. And spirituality, science, you know, those things, people didn't really talk about them very much. And I I always assumed that everyone believed, as I believed. When you're a young person, you just kind of think that. You, you just assume that people think the way that you think. And it wasn't until I was in the corporations that I found that uh, nothing could be further from the truth. I, I was taught in, in my academic training and then in my corporate training that, that these two great ways of knowing, science and spirituality, are uh, in direct opposition to one another, that they're mutually exclusive, and that we must choose a path of either science or spirituality, but we can't follow both. And... It was interesting to me because I, I found myself uh, working behind the scenes during one of the most frightening times in the history of our world, uh, the last years of, of the Cold War. And the question that I asked myself at that time is, is simply this. Is there something that we could learn from our past, uh, a way of thinking of ourselves and our relationship to the world, uh, is there a way to weave together the great knowing of thousands of years of our ancestors' wisdom with the best science of today, to weave those two ways of knowing into a wisdom that's greater than science can be all by itself or that spiritual traditions can be all by themselves? And if we could do that, could that wisdom help us to avoid the kinds of wars like the Cold War of the 20th century and, and the tremendous suffering uh, that we saw from the atrocities and the genocides and the the uh, the hate that comes from the way we think of ourselves and our relationship to the world and, and our differences. So the the my search to answer that question is what has led me on the journey from the the science and the technical world uh, as it was at that time in the corporations and in the what I uh, the way that I express these things today. When I was young, it was it was interesting because I always thought that when we study science, uh, you know, geology, chemistry, biology, physics, I always thought those were just the names that we give to these little compartmentalized elements of of the universe, and that ultimately there there is an intelligent force, and, and I don't know what that force is, um, but it's clear to me that there is some guiding principle in the universe uh, that allows patterns of energy to form and, and allows the events of our lives to unfold in, in the way that they do. So I always thought that when we study science, we were studying those and just never talked about it. And it was in the corporations where I learned that um, that that's not the way that science <laughs> views their, their work and their lives at all. So all of this has led to the most recent book uh, was released in October of 2011, and it is titled Deep Truth, and it is it is a book that reveals new scientific discoveries, Chris, that overturn 150 years of scientific assumptions, and many of those assumptions uh, are at the foundation of life in the West as we know it today. They're at the foundation of the way we live our lives, uh, the way we think about jobs, the way we think about careers, the way we think about money the way we think about security, um, the way we think about working together in, in hard times, consciously and subconsciously, many of, of those things are based in principles that have been established in the last 150 years. New discoveries are now telling us where that thinking is based upon false assumptions. And people jump in their seats when they hear that and they in a, in a conference or a seminar, they say, yay, you know, new discoveries, they're going to help us understand the, the deep truths of our relationship to the world. Well, the flip side of these discoveries is that there is a reluctance in the mainstream, in some cases an outright resistance, 
in mainstream media uh, to, to share these new discoveries. Mainstream documentaries, mainstream classrooms, mainstream textbooks are very invested in teaching a worldview based upon science that we now know in, in some cases is obsolete. Uh, in other cases, it's flat out wrong, but we're still teaching it. So this would be important at any time in our lives. It's critical now because the best minds of our time are telling us very clearly uh, that we're living a time of what they see as the greatest crises in 5,000 years of, of human history. And the crises, many of us, uh, uh, for some of these, the crises are new, like the, the collapse of the economic system of our planet. Uh, some people say this is, just came out of the blue. It just happened. But those who have been following the patterns and the cycles, we know that um, that the system must collapse because it's based on unsustainable principles. And there are other systems that are collapsing as well. So while the new discoveries would be important at any time in our lives, they're especially important now because it's, it's the way we think of ourselves and our relationship to the world that determines how we solve the problems. And if we continue to think of ourselves based upon false assumptions of science, we know where those kinds of solutions are going to lead because we're living the consequences of them right now. So this is a long answer to a short question, but I want to lay this out as we go into our, our conversation today. Uh, new discoveries are helping us to understand uh, new truths of our relationship to ourselves, to one another, to the earth, to our past, to our future. And all of that changes the way we've been led to think about our lives, our security, jobs, careers, finances, and the changing world. Uh, and as we allow ourselves to embrace these uh, new discoveries, the deepest truths of our, of our existence, uh, my experience is that when the facts are clear, the choices become obvious. So I'm hoping in this program today we can lay out some very clear facts and then let people choose for themselves how those facts apply to them in their lives. So, again, a long answer to a short question, but we, we covered a lot of ground now that we can draw from. That's great. That's great. So, and, and in what you say really does confirm, in essence, I'm sure that a lot of people that are listening to it, to this sense, but can't articulate or put it into words. So, you know, you describe false assumptions that the science made in the past. Maybe you could give some examples of what those are. And, and, and Sure, I'd be happy to. In, in the book, uh, Deep Truth, uh, I've identified five key assumptions, and there are certainly others. <clears throat> but these are, are five scientific principles that were taught uh, when I was in school back in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, many of our listeners, I uh, know they were you we're led to believe that these are are uh, are the true facts about our relationship to the world when you were in school and uh, our listeners to have young young people young children are still being taught these in the classrooms today and I, before i go into these i just want to clarify one point here uh i offer these programs uh, all over the world in the last 5 years i've been on every continent of the earth not every every country but every continent and I know it's different in different countries. So specifically for the United States of America, uh, what I'm going to say is it's not the teacher's fault that they cannot teach the newest discoveries because every teacher is bound by a covenant uh, with the state uh, w within which they, they teach. They can only teach what is approved curricula through the, the, uh, uh, the school board for that particular state. And unless the board uh, of education approves curricula based on the new discoveries, they're required by law to teach obsolete science. And this is uh, largely what we're seeing happening today. So I'm, I'm going to identify five key assumptions that uh, have been taught as fact in the past and, and are largely taught today. And then we can zero in on a couple of these and, and talk about them within the context of retirement, if you'd like to do it that way. Great. Okay that sounds that? great. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, so first, the first false assumption is based on uh, the thinking of Charles Darwin, uh, and it is about evolution. It says that evolution explains life in general and human life specifically. Uh, the problem with this assumption is the data no longer supports this assumption. Uh, and specifically, when we get into the, the genetic data, the, the exploration of, uh, of DNA, 
uh, it is telling us in very clear terms that evolution cannot explain human existence. Evolution is a fact for other forms of life, uh, plants and animals. As a geologist, uh, I've seen it in the fossil record. Uh, there is no physical data supporting this uh, for humans. So that's the, the first assumption. Right. The second assumption is about civilization. Civilization is only about 5,000 years old, that it began in the time of uh, uh, ancient Sumeria and the Mesopotamian Valley, and that civilization, advanced civilization, is linear. It's a one-time deal. It has evolved from primitive to the sophistication that we see today. Uh, and again, the, the problem with that is the data, archaeological data, peer-reviewed archaeological data simply does not support this. We've got very good evidence of advanced civilizations that were twice as old as what we've been led to believe is, is the age of civilization, dating into the end of the last ice age, Chris. And when we think about civilization from terms uh, where it appears to be cyclic rather than linear, uh, it, it changes many of the, the perceptions that we have about us and our relationship to the earth, and we can talk about those as, as we go through this. The third assumption is uh, is one regarding physics, and it is the assumption that consciousness is somehow separate from our physical world. The best minds of our time in the 20th century, leading physicists uh, like John Wheeler from Princeton University, a colleague of Albert Einstein's, was a pioneer in telling us that nothing could be further from the truth, that it is the thinking that consciousness is separate from our physical world that is preventing us from arriving uh, at the unified field theory uh, solving the, the great problems of physics. We've written the answer right out of the equations. Uh, and the, the, the data clearly is showing that consciousness is part of rather than separate from our physical world. False assumption number four uh, also is, is uh, regarding physics. It says the space between physical things is empty. If you're listening to this program, I know that you know there is no empty space in the universe. There's something everywhere. The problem is our equipment, uh, our machines are simply built to detect certain forms of energy as they exist in the way that we expect. And there are forms of energy that don't behave the way that we would expect, uh, like uh, a magnetic field or an electrical field. So our our devices simply are not designed to detect these, these forms of energy. Uh, and the last assumption comes back to Charles Darwin, and it is the idea that nature is based upon what he called survival of the strongest, and it was later interpreted as survival of the fittest. Uh, the problem is that the, the new data, uh, peer-reviewed scientific studies, over 400 of them in the late 20th century, are showing us that nature is based upon a model of cooperation and what is called mutual aid, that conflict and competition does occur in nature under certain circumstances, but it is not the model that nature is based upon. Uh, and this is very, very different than what we've been led to believe about ourselves and our relationship to the world. Uh, most of us have been led to believe that uh, this is a world of struggle, uh, a term dog-eat-dog dog, is used frequently. And that perception, subconsciously as well as consciously, it, uh, it is a bias for the way that we go about solving the problems of life, personal problems, the challenges that cross our paths as individuals, collectively as communities, families, and certainly as nations. Uh, the economic system that's collapsing in the world right now is collapsing because it's an unsustainable system based upon this principle of survival of the strongest. Many of the corporate systems are, are working the same way. So these five assumptions, uh, they are, it's not theory, it's not hypothesis scientifically. The data does not support them. Uh, they've been taught as fact. In many instances, they still are in our schools today. Every one of them is, uh, is a false assumption. And the new discoveries are now pointing us in a direction uh, to rethink our relationship to the earth, to ourselves, to the past, to the future, and how we go about solving our problems. And, uh, and that changes everything, Chris. So this, uh, the new book, Deep Truth, it was written to very concisely identify the discoveries, 
peer-reviewed scientific discoveries and uh, identify the importance, significance of those discoveries in our lives today. So I think what we'll probably do is zero in on a couple of these uh, within the context of what we're talking about. Uh, security for ourselves, for our families, the idea of what retirement used to be, what pre-retirement can be, and uh, how these principles that we have held uh, as truths in the past, how they're changing in our lives today. So, again, that was a long answer to a short question, but now we have the five false assumptions that we can work with. That's great. Boy, that's just such a confirmation because for people like my, you know, 92-year-old scientific atomic engineer dad, seeing it scientifically written out that people can actually see these old models aren't working anymore. And so the conceptions that we have about our life and how we live our life and interact don't fit. They're not fitting anymore, and they'll, that's why it appears to be what they call the tipping point. Do you do you think that we're at the tipping point of our existence now? I, I certainly believe we're probably uh, a little past that tipping point, and I think we're all... You know, it's no secret, if you're listening to this program, I know that you know uh, something's changed in the world. Right. And, you know, Chris, I, I wish that we would just have an announcement on you know, mainstream media, uh, you know, CNN or Fair and Balance, Fox News or, you know, Time Magazine or whatever it is. I wish they would just come out and say the world changed. Uh, it changed while we were looking. And the way we have thought of the world in the past uh, has changed. And the world that we have known and grown accustomed to no longer exists. Uh, but nobody's going to tell us that. The way right. we've been led to think about uh, our relationship to the world. We no longer live in separate economies. We don't live in um, separate financial systems. We don't live uh, in separate technologies. We're sharing technologies. We're sharing um, resources. All of that has changed the way we think. What we've thought about jobs in the past doesn't mean the same anymore. What we've thought about careers doesn't mean the same. What we've thought about money uh, the way we define security. All of those things have changed, but no one really told us. So this is, I think, where we want to go with this today. What do these changes mean, uh, um, and, and how do we deal with these things in, in our lives? Exactly. So I, I think, um, I mean, are, can we just talk about those things? Yeah, okay go, just go with that. Exactly. Go for it. Right. You know, I was, uh, as I was getting ready for this call today, uh, I was thinking about how we might go about talking about some of these things. And I I think one of the things, I think about my mom a lot. My uh, my mom and I have these conversations all the time. And I don't know how many of your listeners uh, have seen the movie. I don't want to spoil it if they haven't, but there's a movie called The Bucket List. Um, I don't get out to see movies much. I watch them uh, largely on airplanes <laughs> Right. when I'm traveling overseas. And on a, a flight to uh, Lima, Peru, I got to see the bucket list uh, three times because it was a long flight. <laughs> and it was a great movie. And it's, it's about two men at the end of their lives that recognize there are things they wanted to do in life they never got to do. And in the movie, it's a very moving film about how they help one another realize their life's dreams. So I came home and asked Mom if she had a bucket list of things that she wanted to do before she, she leaves this world. And she said, well, yes. And I said, what are those things? And she told me, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, we can do all of these. Let's, I mean, let's start right now. We can do all of these right this minute. And she said, well, she said, you know, we, we can start soon, but she says, not right now. <laughs> and I said, I said, why not right now? And she said, well, and this is why I'm sharing this. She says, let's wait till things get back to normal. Um, and I said, well, you know, what do you mean by normal? And she said, you know, Let's wait till things uh, get back to the way they used to be, uh, maybe five years ago or ten years ago. And I hear people say this a lot. They, something feels different in the world. They don't know what it is. They think it's temporary, and they're waiting for things to get back to the way they used to be. Exactly, yes. Well, the problem is this. The world changed. And as we just mentioned, nobody officially told us that the world changed. And the people that I see struggling the most are the people that are clinging to a way of thinking and a way of living uh, that no longer exists because that world is gone. If my mom waits 
for the world to get back to the way things used to be, she'll never fulfill her bucket list because that world is gone. Right. And it, it is a fact. We no longer live in isolated countries. We don't live in isolated economies. We don't use isolated technologies or isolated energy or defense or communication. And the way we've thought about medicine, health, religion, jobs, careers, money, security, all those things, it, it's changed. But nobody told us. So I, I think one of the biggest changes, I'm, I'm just going to give a, a personal example. And Chris, feel free to jump in any time here. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy. You're, this I, but I'm just, I, I'm sensitive to our time, and I, I want to share as much as I can, make right. the best use of our, our time. Perfect. When I was in uh, the corporations, uh, specifically I was in the Defense Department, and it was at the end of the Cold War. My project was complete. It seemed to make, uh, to me, a good time to make a transition. And I remember the day I went into my director's office when I worked for a company called Martin Marietta. That time it was Martin Marietta Defense. Now it's uh, Lockheed Martin. I went in and, and said to him that I was going to leave. Uh, I was actually asked. I said, I, I, I'd like to leave. I'd like to work with you to, to, uh, in terms of when the best time is to make this transition. And the first thing he assumed that I was going with a, a competitor, uh, Boeing computer systems or something like that. And when he found out that I wasn't, he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to write a book. And he said, well, that's good. What are you going to do for a living? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to write a book. And what I didn't know until that time was how angry and how much it could light up other people's lives, the choices that we make as individuals around our careers. Uh, he became really angry. And he, he got right in my face, he poked his finger in my chest, and he said, what gives you the right? To, what gives you the right to turn your back on this company and walk away from a company that's been so good to you? Now, the thinking that I grew up with, my father worked for IBM for 30 years, and there was a, a way of thinking that we find a good company with good benefits, uh, a good salary, uh, good insurance, you know, doing something that we feel like we're good at doing, and, and we we stay with that company until the very end. And that thinking was reflected in this conversation with my uh, with my director. What he said to me was this, he, and this is the reason I'm sharing this story. He says, you've got it made here. He says, you've got good income, good possibilities. He said, you're in a great position. Then he looked at me and he said, all you've got to do is ride it out for 30 more years. 30 more years, and you've got it made. And uh, immediately, I said, oh, thank you. I said, I said, I had a few doubts when I came into this office as to whether or not I was making the right decision. I said, but if I had any doubts, you just you sealed the deal for me. Because to, to write it out, to simply write it out for 30 more years was so foreign to my way of thinking. Uh, and I suspect this for many of our listeners as well. They're probably in jobs or, or working in careers. On paper, they look good. They're qualified to do these things. They've learned to do them well, but they don't feel really fulfilled in, in what they're doing. And I think this is one of the keys for building lasting uh, security for ourselves. And security comes in, in a lot of different forms. Uh, when I talk to people about finances and money and career, they say, you know, Greg, I thought we were going to talk about spiritual things. And I say, what could possibly, I agree, what could possibly be more spiritual than talking about the life that you design and create based upon the principles that you claim in your heart to believe and to live by. The way we live our lives in the outer world ideally is a mirror of the things that we trust and believe in and claim to be true in our lives. It's where the rubber meets the road. The, the, the spiritual rubber of our hearts meets the, the road of, of the real world. And these ideas suddenly take on uh, new meaning when we begin to think of them that way. So the idea of just getting in with a company, well, some people could do it if it's a really good company and you're happy. But uh, for many people, I think the key, and I'm, I'm going to share something here that, that may be the crux of the whole conversation that we're having today. Many people I'm, I'm talking to, we know that there's something, a, a great shift happening in the world today, and it is a fact. Uh, it's a fact that this generation, we're living the greatest shift in power, in wealth, in resources, in technology, in 5,000 years of recorded human history. And to successfully navigate that shift 
And it means that we must embrace the greatest shift in thinking in 5,000 years of recorded human history. So here, from my perspective, Chris, and I think this is what this call is about today, here is what I believe is the shift that we're all asking ourselves to make internally. Based upon the false assumptions that we identified just a few moments ago, based upon a world that works the way those assumptions have led us to believe the world works, we all have been conditioned to ask ourselves and live our lives based upon a single question. And here's the question. The question is, what can I get from the world that exists? What can I get from the world that exists? That's the way many of us, subconsciously or sometimes consciously, purposefully, that's the way we've been led to think about our relationship to all the things we do, including jobs and careers, retirement, retirement, all of those things. Right. The world changed, and new discoveries are telling us that those false assumptions are no longer true. Now we know that, that the origin of life does not appear to be random. The origin of human life does not appear to be random. Uh, our relationship to our bodies in the world, we are not separate. We are intimately entwined and interconnected. Civilization isn't a one-time deal. It's cyclic. And we can learn from our past if we have the wisdom to do that. And based on those factual scientific discoveries, we also know now that nature is based upon a model of cooperation and mutual aid rather than competition and violence. And we begin to look at, at the world in that way, then our question changes. And the question changes from what can I get from the world that exists, our, now, our, our new question becomes, what can I give to the world that's emerging? In a world based upon cooperation and mutual aid, where we're interconnected and interdependent, the question is, what can I give to the world that's emerging? And that is a deceptively simple question. And the way that we answer that question becomes the lens through which we think of ourselves and our relationship to the world, uh, our security in the present, our security in the future, the whole idea of retirement begins to change because we continuously contribute to the world in our families and our communities and, and ultimately even on a greater scale. And as that contribution continues again and again and again, there really is no retirement because we contribute until uh, we take our last breath on the face of the earth. So the whole idea of our role in this changing world, rather than grabbing onto a job and hanging on because we're qualified on paper to do it until we can retire, then shifts to finding ways that we can express uh, our deepest, deepest love, our deepest passions, in life, how can we translate those into something useful and meaningful in the emerging world? And that opens up a whole plethora of possibilities for jobs and careers where traditional jobs and traditional careers are disappearing very, very quickly. So this is where all of this comes together. The way we shift our thinking around that single question from what can I get from the world that exists to what can I give to the world that's emerging? Boy, that, that's just great. That just sums up, that sums up my heart and exactly what I'm trying to, to guide people when I say, are you ready for pre-retirement? Because I'm not just talking about money and I use the form, the phrase, a state of mind to include exactly what you're talking about, about giving back to the world and in your life it's you should be in that state of mind of retirement right now, whatever age you are. And that is is what your legacy is or what you leave behind every moment when you talk to people or you smile at the lady behind the cash register and change lives and you know, it's amazing how well, you know, that changes it. It, it it does. And I personally this is uh, this is where I deviate from scientific fact uh, and just go into Gregisms, uh, Greg, Greg's opinions. I personally would like to see that the whole idea of retirement disappear. 
Yeah. Uh, for this reason, and I, I worked. Uh, you mentioned a couple of corporations. I was a, I was a, a computer geologist for Phillips Petroleum um, during the first energy crisis in the seventies when we had the oil embargo. It was a fascinating time. It was a time of crisis. Right. I was uh, a senior computer systems designer for Martin Marietta uh, in the last years of the Cold War, another time of crisis. I was the first technical operations manager for Cisco Systems uh, during the first Gulf War, another crisis. And we are in crisis now. And what I see about crisis, I, I used to have an aversion to the word crisis. Now I've really come to appreciate it because, to me, if, if the crisis is present, it means we've still got time to do something about it. We still have time to to look at what it is at, at the the factors that are, are creating that crisis and, and to make changes and choices in our lives. So crisis is actually a blessing. When the crisis is over, it means there's it, whatever's going to happen has happened. We, we can't do anything about it now. But, but because we are in crisis, uh, and and all of those careers and working under stressful conditions of crises, what I found is this: many of the people that I worked with. I'm going to say the majority of people I worked with identified so closely with what they did in their jobs where I saw them day in and day out that that was the way they saw themselves in the world. So if, if I would meet somebody on the street and I'd say, you know, what are you, who are you, you know, or tell me about yourself, the first thing they'd do is they'd say, I am an engineer in the defense industry or I am a geologist or I'm a communications engineer. And people become so entrenched in thinking of themselves in that way when suddenly they retire and they stop doing that. Uh, we've all heard anecdotal stories and a lot of reports. But people get lost because their their entire identity is tied up in what it was that they were doing rather than who they actually are. And it's not unusual to see people uh, people's lives end shortly after retirement because they, they feel that they have, they're worthless. And I've had people say that to me. Right. They feel that they no longer have any value in our society because they're not doing what they did in the past. That is a, a model of thinking about life and jobs and career that is very, very quickly disappearing. And we're finding more people now that have found a way to answer the question, what can I give to the world that's emerging? And their answer to that, and there, there may be multiple answers for each of us because we are all multiple Beings, beings of multiple forms of creativity. And as they explore one area of their creativity and they find a place where that's meaningful in the world, it opens the door to others. It's very, very different from just going to work uh, for a company and hanging on for the benefits and for the fixed salary, you know, for decades and then, and then stopping all right. of a sudden, just leaving. Right. So, and money is important. You know, a lot of people don't like to talk about money in spiritual circles. They say they think it's an unspiritual thing to do. Uh, and again, I come back, what could be more spiritual than creating, designing a life uh, for yourself, your family, those that you are uh, in some ways responsible for or being want to contribute to, designing that based upon principles that you claim to, to be true of you, you and your relationship to the world, um, the earth, your body, and the holistic principles that, that we now claim to be true. Our idea of money is changing, and especially if you live in, in the West. And I think we owe it to ourselves uh, to be abreast of what's going on, to, to keep up with why it's changing. Uh, I know a lot of financial advisors are telling their clients, stay the course, we've been through this before, do what we've done in the past and everything is going to be fine. And I think they mean well, but I also think they're not fully informed. I totally and agree. Here's the, here, here's the reason why. It's not unusual to see a country reach what's called a debt, <coughs> debt ceiling. A debt ceiling is where a country owes more than the country is able to generate an income. We've all seen that before. And it's not uncommon when that happens for another country to come and bail them out. So we've, we've reached debt ceilings before. That's not the problem. The problem that you're hearing very little about in the media is that for the first time, we've reached what's called a debt wall. And a debt wall is where the entire world owes more money than the entire world is producing. 
Never in the history of economics has the world reached a debt wall. So while a debt ceiling, uh, one country can come and bail another country out when we've reached a debt ceiling, who bails a planet out when you reach a debt wall? That's the game changer that makes this so very, very different. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know where everything is going. And I know this is not uh, any ordinary time in the economic cycles. And as, as people understand the relationships between debt and the value of the dollar that they work very hard for, as they understand those principles, then they can make their own wise decisions about what to do with the uh, whatever wealth they have worked very hard for for themselves and their families and their children. And the, the bottom line to that is it's a, it's a very interesting inverse relationship. Uh, the more debt we incur, the less value our dollar holds, and everything to us looks like it, it becomes more expensive. So where it looks like gas prices are going up, they're really not. It's just that the value of the dollar is going down because we have so much debt uh, regarding that dollar. And as we begin to understand those principles, we can look for the things that seem to hold their value uh, rather than lose value. And in, historically, those are things that we call tangible assets. So things, uh, physical things like, uh, like land or like food, um, those things tend to hold their value in times where we go through economic crises like we are right now. Precious metals, I think everyone's aware of precious metals, some forms of energy. The world always needs energy. So as people take it upon themselves to, to be responsible in their own lives to understand the principles that are unfolding, no one can tell anyone what to do because we all think differently and we all have different needs. But as we understand the, the key principles and how they interact with one another, then we can make our own wise decisions uh, in terms of, of what's important to us and our families and, and meet our goals and our needs. That's different for everyone. When we talk about retirement and pretirement, this is where the whole idea of, of savings, as we've known it in the past, begins to take on a whole new meaning because our our savings uh the traditional forms that we've we've depended upon for savings in the past are tied uh, to a monetary unit, to a, the dollar that is losing its value. So once we understand that, um, again, nobody can tell us what to do, but we can make whatever choices make sense for our particular situation, short-term and long-term. And as we continue to answer the question, what can I give to the world that's emerging, the way that we answer that question, and if we use that as, a, as the, the compass by which we live our lives, then we can continue to create abundance for ourselves and not have to be so dependent upon the traditional ways of thinking about income uh, uh, and about security in, in our lives. So I know it's very fast, very high level, and uh, I don't know how much... Did we do okay on that one? <laughs> oh, you did great on that one. Which okay. Is, yeah, of course, because this is, I mean, people have to be instructed on how to think. They were thought, taught, you know, the model is you got to, you know, go to school and get a job and retire, but, but really they were never taught to find out about who they are and, and, and who, who they are inside and what do they have to give to the world and how important all that is. It, Everything you're saying just supports the whole overall. I mean, I wish I could just, like, you know, give all your information at once because it's totally a revelation. It's a game changer. Um, if people could digest all of it at once, but it's a little bit at a time. How, how would you replace the false assumptions? How can you, how can you start teaching people to get the right point of view? Well, the you know in the book Deep Truth, it it is it is a book, and in that book, uh, while the book is just under 300 pages, for some people that sounds like a lot, it's actually a very condensed, consolidated way uh, for me to answer just that question, Chris. What are the new discoveries? It, it is a, a fact-based book. It's not my theory. It's not my speculation. Uh, it's all very well documented, and it it gives a voice to the scientific community 
that ha- that shares the discoveries. I mean, the scientists are on board with it. It's the media, mainstream science, the the pop science, if you will, that is not reflecting these discoveries. The truth of climate change. What what's really happening with climate change, and what is our role in climate change? Um, the fact that nature is based upon this model of cooperation rather than competition changes everything. Exactly. There's a huge war that is looming on the horizon in the Middle East right now. This is uh, the spring of 2012. Uh, there are people that believe a big war would be good for the economy of the world because it has been in the past. Right. What they're missing is that peace is such a powerful, viable economy and that uh, a world based on a peaceful economy actually has the, the potential to outproduce uh, in very beneficial products uh, a wartime economy. So in the 20th century, great wars fueled the economy. I would like to see in the 21st century the, the thinking change that recognizes that, that peace is a viable economy and, uh, and that we could work together as, as a global community to institute new forms of energy, for example. Put everybody to work, creating new forms of energy. Everybody benefits, and you don't have to have a war to create that, that booming economy. Right. So th- those assumptions, though, they're, they're key. Uh, many people ask me, you know, they say, Greg, okay, we, we get Darwin, for example. He, 150 years ago is when he introduced his ideas. So what consequence could they possibly have in our lives today? Who cares about Darwin's ideas 150 years later? And it's a good question. And the answer is that, yes, we are 150 years later. We're now in the early 21st century. He identified his ideas in 1859. But the the civilization that we live in, the way that we think about our world is largely based upon ideas that began in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They were based on Darwin's ideas. And we've refined those ideas over the last century and a half, but it's the same principles. So his thinking, uh, survival of the strongest, uh, has been used to justify some of the greatest horrors and atrocities uh, of, of genocide, for example, um, by individuals who believe that Darwin's thinking uh, gives scientific license to identify uh, some members uh, of society, their society, they're inferior to others, and to eliminate those. Uh, this is the danger of, uh, of false assumptions, and this is where this dangerous thinking can lead. So the corporate systems that are collapsing, the economic systems that are collapsing, the way that we deal with the crises of our world, diminishing resources, how do we treat one another in the presence of diminishing supplies of food and water, medicine and technology, as different as all those things are, they all come back to the way we think of ourselves and and largely that we've been led to think of ourselves based upon this idea of dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest or the strongest. And and as we can embrace the new discoveries, and because they are peer-reviewed, because they are scientific discoveries, science is the language that's respected and trusted uh, in the Western world, and that's the only reason that I'm sharing them in, in the language of science, because it gives us a very good reason. Uh, I think people are willing to think differently if they have a good reason. And this gives us a, a good reason to make responsible changes in our lives based upon the facts as we now know them. Uh, and it's different from the world that we were led to believe that, uh, that we live in. So my experience, uh, largely, Chris, is, is once the facts are clear, the choices become obvious. And my goal is just to make the information clear, share clear facts, and then people can apply that to their specific circumstances in their lives, whatever that means to them. Uh, and it goes for security and abundance and finance, uh, retirement, pre-retirement, as well as all the other things that we've talked about. Well, you're doing a great job of bringing it out into a, a way that the average person that's not in the science can understand and verify that truth. You know, it's fascinating to me, you know, it's obvious that major media likes to block the truth and big money and all of that, but it's also fascinating to me. I mean, your work's published in 17 languages in 33 countries. The people are reaching out beyond the media, and they want to know. 
They are, and you know, it, it, all of it's changing. Mm-hmm. Chris, I think uh, people know that something, the media knows that something very, very different is happening now. Our world is changing faster than than we could teach it in the classrooms or document it in the textbooks. And people, everyone's asking questions, uh, you know, why? Why are these things happening? And uh, and I don't think it's a big mystery if we're willing to, to look at the facts uh, in context, our relationship to the world, the cyclic nature of uh, of climate, the cyclic nature of civilization as it relates to climate change, changes the way we live, changes the way we think, changes the way we treat one another and how we deal with resources and sharing. And uh, all of a sudden, when you look at the big picture, it makes tremendous sense. So the science gives us the the reasons to think differently, but it doesn't have to be shared in a really technical language. It could very, very... My mom read the book in about four hours. So if, she had a lot of questions, but she read the book in about four hours. And that that's always a good litmus test for me. If mom can get through the book in four hours without, without going to sleep, I know I, I probably have a, a good book. <laughs> right. That's great. So we have just a few minutes left. Is there anything... Uh, again, this is unscripted. Anything that we want to clarify or, or uh, go into any more depth on? You know, we covered why yeah. context of the world, why we think the way we do, the shift that we can make as individuals, uh, a little bit about uh, the, the nuts and bolts of dollars uh, in relationship to, to debt in the changing world and, and choices we might make. So anything along those, any of those things you'd like to, to clarify before we, we close our program today? Well, um, you've given such wonderful content here, and I'd really like to elaborate on all of it, which we'll go into the future on. But maybe just maybe you could just sum it up. If you had one thing that you wanted to say, if say you only had five minutes left to talk to the world, sure. what would be what would you say? Well, and that's essentially what we've done. I would say that uh, that we are living a rare and precious moment, uh, unprecedented in the memory of 5,000 years of human history. Nobody living today has ever lived through the conditions that are called the perfect storm, the convergence of many cycles, climate cycles, economic cycles, resource cycles, cycles of war and peace and the rise and fall of civilizations. They're all converging in just a few brief years. We've never lived through that before, and it is creating what is, in fact, the largest shift in power, wealth, resources in 5,000 years of recorded human history that's requiring the greatest shift in thinking. And while it all sounds very complex and huge, uh, it really comes down to each of us, each and every day, we want to make sense of what's happening in the world. It's the way we answer that very simple question. How can I get, what can I get from the world that exists today is, is the question that we were all raised thinking and asking. If we can make the shift into the new question, what can I give to the world that's emerging? What can I give? How can I contribute to this world that's emerging? The way we answer that question changes the way we think of ourselves and our relationship to the world, and it does, in fact, open many doors of possibility for jobs, for careers, for creativity, uh, for abundance and security. Uh, because it is all about the subtle shift that brings us into alignment with the deepest truths of our world and our existence. So that's what I would say. If I came to this world and I have five minutes and then I said, oh, time's up, i got to go. <laughs> Time to go. Well, that's great, Greg. And I want to share with everybody that, um, well, maybe you could tell everybody how they could connect with you to get this great this book and the other other wonderful books you have, too. Well, sure. And, uh, if you're not familiar with my work, I'm a Hay House author. And uh, Hay House, you know, everyone learns differently, Chris, and I think that's why there's so many really good and truly amazing and gifted authors, researchers, scholars, and teachers in the world today. So Hay House has uh, an amazing community. It's truly a family of those people. Many of them I've known longer than we've had books. We've been friends for 25, over 25 years before we even had any books. Really good people. So uh, Hay House website certainly has my books and, and many others as well. Uh, my my website um, is actually managed by Hay House. It's gregbraden.com, G-R-E-G-G-B-R-A-D-E-N.com. Uh, there are video clips of our uh, our events that we've done that cover many of the different books, uh, 
all of my event schedules on there through 2013, I believe, through the end of 2013. Um, and uh, wherever books are sold, Barnes & Noble, um, uh, Amazon certainly has all of our books that are there. But the book we've been talking about is the most recent, and the title is Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate. The title of the book actually comes from a, a statement made by Niels Bohr, a colleague of Albert Einstein's in the 20th century. And the two men were talking about how quickly truth changes when new discoveries emerge, which is just where we are today. And what Niels Bohr said, he said, it is the hallmark of any deep truth that its negation is also a deep truth, end of quote. So he was saying when new discoveries emerge that change what we've been led to believe in the past, the new discoveries become the new deep truth, and that's precisely where we find ourselves today. And this book is my way of uh, encapsulating that fact and then sharing it with uh, as many people in a way that's as accessible uh, and responsible as possible. So thank you for asking and give me the opportunity to say a little bit about that. Well, that's great, and, and it's really, really been a blessing having this great talk with you today, and I look forward to a, another time with you and, and hope that a lot of people reach out to, to read your book and get connected on the the new way to think about things and put on a new pair of glasses and see the world too. Well, great. Chris, I want to thank you again on this program publicly uh, just for being such a gracious host and for your your vision for creating this kind of programming. And uh, I'd love to come back and do another program, so I won't say goodbye. Let's say this is the close for part one. That sounds beautiful. All right. Okay. okay. See you for part two. All right. Sounds good. See you for round two and... And have a totally blessed day, everybody who's listening. Found out you can't take the curve at 85. My whole life flashed before my eyes. I braced myself to leave this world behind. A million questions raced across my mind. Did I live? Did I love? Did I matter to someone? Did I give everything I had to give? Did I save any soul? Was I worried about my own? Was I haunted by the things I never did? Did I embrace each day? Faith, hope, and laughter Did I matter? Did I matter? From that moment I became a brand new me With the golden ticket to a better destiny And I told my heart there'll never come a day when I'd have to search inside of me and say Did I live? Did I love? Did I matter to someone? Did I give everything I had to give? Did I save any soul? Was I worried about my own? Was I haunted by the things I never did? Did I embrace each day? Faith, hope, and laughter Did I matter? Did, did, did I matter? I hope I can be a voice of inspiration And my story finds you well Cause when the curtain falls There ain't no second chances And you don't wanna ask yourself Did I live? Did I love? Did I matter to someone? Did I give everything I had to give? Did I save any souls? Was I worried about my own? Was I haunted by the things I never did? Did I embrace each day with faith, hope, and laughter? Did I matter? 
Did I matter? Oh, oh, oh. Did I matter? Did I matter? 